The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Our sermon passage is Galatians chapter 3, verses 5 through 14. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all, for all who rely on works of the law are under, are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That ends the reading of God's word. Thank you, Laura. Well... Um, this is an interesting passage. What do we, what do we have here? Uh, I was trying to think of some connections to be made here. This is one thing that came to my mind. If, if you have someone in your family, perhaps, who is really into, you know, researching, collecting, gathering things pertaining to your family tree... You, you, you see them, they want to talk about it, they want to break out the research, trace things back, trace back your family line, go back decades, centuries even. Uh, such a neat thing if you do have somebody like that uh, in your family. But uh, I would say that Paul, in a sense, is being that guy here. He's doing this uh, for us, something akin to it uh, anyhow. Uh, as you can see, he mentions Abraham many times. He mentions Abraham five times here. Except that the main reason, I mean, he's not just interested in, in taking us a walk, you know, uh, back down uh, the corridors of time to, to just think about family. That's not, that's not the only thing. The main thing that he's doing here is he's, he's trying to bring the gospel into focus through this practice. Paul just, he just never backs down on this. He, he just never veers from it. He's, he's committed to this message. Now, um, he does talk about people. He does talk about events. He, he uh, does get into some family tree stuff here, like I said. But the main thing, again, the subject at hand, the reason that he's bringing these things up, it comes back again to the gospel, which keeps us on track, uh, I think, with where we've been. Uh, we have to keep track of where we've been. This is a letter, after all. Uh, we're taking it bit by bit over a long period of time, but it's a letter. But do you remember what Paul said uh, in the passage that we looked at just last week. He said, Has someone bewitched you, Galatians? Has someone put a spell on you, 
And Paul's main point and goal here is you need to come back, everybody. Come back. Come back under the good, gracious spell of the gospel. And so what does Paul do? Does he, is, is he's moving along here and, and just trying to bring these people back around? What does he do? Does he, does he come up with a new tactic? Does he try something new? And I would say, yes, he does, actually. And no, he doesn't, actually. Um, no, he doesn't try anything new in the sense that he doesn't move on from the gospel as a way of trying to bring them back to the gospel. There's no plan B with Paul. You understand? No tricks, no bargaining, nothing like that. It's the gospel or nothing for Paul. It's the main point of his point in this letter. It's the only tactic. It's the only appeal. So no, nothing new. Nothing new in that regard. But yes, something new in the sense that he begins to appeal to them and to us with the gospel in some very interesting and unexpected ways. In fact, I would argue that he begins to tell us things about the gospel that are altogether, altogether unexpected and surprising. Like, whoa, what did he say there? This is interesting. Okay, let me show you what I mean. I'm looking at verse 7 right now. Paul says this, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this is interesting. Do you see what I'm seeing? This is interesting because what Paul is suggesting here, he's referencing Genesis chapter 12, by the way. He's going back. Back, back into family, fa the family tree, right? Um, this is where this quote comes from. And he's telling us that going way back in time, all the way back to the days of Abraham, long before Jesus came to, the, to, to earth, was born of Mary, even before the law, even before the law was established by God, um, he's telling us that God preached the gospel to Abraham? Is that what he said? Is that right? It was being proclaimed even then, Paul tells us. And even then, it was a message that was intended to be received, not by works of the law, the law didn't exist yet, but by faith, by faith alone. And this is interesting because if you go back to this passage from Genesis 12, what you will sort out is that there's no direct reference to Jesus, but he is inferred there because Jesus is of Abraham. He's of the seed of Abraham in an earthly sense. He's a part of the line. He's a part of the family tree, and therefore Jesus is the blessing. In fact, Paul says it. He says it explicitly in this passage that Jesus is the blessing to the nations that are being talked about there. And so you might say that it was an abbreviated gospel message that was preached to Abraham back then. It wasn't in full bloom at the time, but it was there, okay? It was there, and Abraham believed it. He believed it by faith, and that faith that he exercised resulted in Abraham being declared righteous by God, and he's 
He's the prototype. He's setting the example for us. This is remarkable. Paul's saying this, this faith business, this is nothing new. <laughs> this gospel message, it's nothing new. It's very interesting. And as he discusses these things here, as far as Paul is concerned, it's all about faith and blessing. Okay? Faith and blessing. Well, what does he mean when he says, he says these things? What does he mean? What is he talking about? And that's what we want to investigate together this morning. Faith and blessing. What is it all about? Here's an outline um, for us to, to work with as we, as we go. Three things. First, the blessing and the curse. All right? The, the blessing and the curse. Both of these words are used a great deal here. So, you know, we're, we're going to try to make heads or tails of what these words mean. And then after we have... We will delve deeper into both of them in greater detail. And so our second point will be the curse of the law. And then our third and last point will be the blessing of faith. So one more time, the blessing and the curse, followed by the curse of the law, and then lastly, the blessing of faith. So to begin with the the blessing and the curse, and again, uh, what we're trying to do at the start here is just simply to try to get the lay of the land of what it is that Paul's talking about here. Just establish a little context. So can you just consider some of the words and definitions that are, um, are used here. This passage is really unique in the sense that there is a lot of words and phrases in this passage that are just like on repeat. They just keep coming up again and again and again. Um, lots of repetition, uh, which almost makes it challenging. You know, it's, you know, sometimes you'll find a passage and it's just got like one word or phrase that comes up again and again, and you're like, okay, I see the gist. I see the flow of what's going on here. But we've got a lot of things, a lot of emphasis in this passage. So, for instance, I already mentioned uh, Abraham. His, his name's mentioned five times here, five times in ten, ten verses, so that's a lot. Here's another one, faith. Not surprising that this would come up, but faith, it's mentioned eight times here, eight, eight times in ten verses, in all kinds of ways, by faith, through faith, of faith. And then in contrast to faith, like across the table from it, Paul uses the word law. He uses it seven times. Um, and at least one more time beyond that, indirectly. Uh, again, that's a lot. It's, that's a lot of repetition. But perhaps most interesting of the words that are repeated again and again here are the words, you guessed it, blessed and cursed. Paul uses the word cursed on five occasions in this passage. And in, then in contrast to that, across the table from that, he uses the word blessed. He uses the word blessed three times. Doesn't seem like very many, I suppose. But I'll say this, this passage that Paul is quoting from, from Genesis chapter 12. Let me just read that to you. Um, This is three verses, first three verses of Genesis 12. Listen for this word blessed, okay? Here it is. This is that, that like, um, early gospel proclamation. Now the Lord said to Abram, speaking of Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Five times 
in this passage that Paul's referencing. And so, the, you know, why am I going on about this? Like, why are you describing all these words and, and they're, they're the numbers of times they're, they're being used? Uh, come on. And in particular, I'm trying to get us to zero in on these words, blessed and cursed, because I think that they encapsulate all of the other ones that are in, in heavy usage. All right? And they don't just encapsulate them. These words actually do a great job of interpreting them, framing them, uh, I would say laying them bare, helping us to, to get like straight to the point, to the heart, to the feel of all these words that are being used again and again. Blessings and curses. What should these things mean to us? Blessings and curses. Blessed, or blessing, we'll just try to attach a definition to this. This is a funny word, really. I think we know that, right? Um, we've talked about this here before. It's, it's one of those words that uh, it's just got a lot of baggage, doesn't it? It, it, um, it gets misused quite a bit. It's, it's a misunderstood word, uh, I would argue. But here's what I think it should mean to us as we read it here. This is, this is I think, what Paul's audience would have heard as he said this. It, it, it would have implied, not stuff, like, man, sure getting blessed this Christmas. No, not, nothing like that. It would have implied God's favor. You understand? God's favor. And by favor, we're talking about, I'm just going to throw out a, just a bunch of words. Reception. God's reception. God's acceptance. God's approval. His presence. His peace. His delight, like, on someone's life. For instance, to illustrate this, at the end of our service this morning, um, I'll share a benediction before we all part ways, as I always do. And um, I'll be sharing this benediction from Numbers chapter 6. You, you know this well, I'm sure. But listen for this. Listen for a definition, if you, if you will, of, of blessed, blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and what follows from here, I think, is, is essentially an explanation of what that may, might mean. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you. And may he be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. This is blessing. This is what Paul is talking about here when he uses this word. When he says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so blessing in the Bible, anyhow, rather than it capturing some kind of you know, physical experience of prosperity, rather than that, it signifies the sorts of things that we were created for, what we were made to experience, the shalom of God to know and experience the peace of God between us and God. And I believe that this is why Paul begins his letter. You know, he, be he began the letter in chapter 1, right? But in his introduction by saying, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace speaks of what? Unearned, unmerited favor, the favor of God. God's face shining on us, his face turned towards us. Well, what about this word cursed? What does that mean? How should we understand that? And we're, we're going to go into this at great length in just a moment here. Right? Like, 
very soon. But in brief, these are our words of contrast. This is why I was saying across the table from, right? And so rather than cursed being some kind of, of word that we might associate with like Halloween, you know, I'm, I'm guessing we've probably seen a couple of movies over the course of time that begin like the curse of, you know, the haunted castle or something like that. I don't, I don't think that that's the idea here. Rather than that, I think we'd be getting closer to an understanding of the word cursed if we were to think of it as the opposite of the word blessed that I just described. So essentially the absence of all those things that we were just talking about and thinking about, the absence of God's favor, the absence of God's peace, and the absence of God's present presence and his delight, his face turned, it, cursed might mean that his face is turned away from us rather than towards us, that we're not experiencing his face shining upon us. In these two terms, they encapsulate the whole argument that Paul is making here as it relates to the gospel, all right? And so that's a somewhat brief, you might think of it as like a 4,000-foot consideration of, of blessing and, and cursing. But now let's, let's take, take these one at a time. We'll begin with the curse. The curse, of the, the curse of the law is our second point. Notice that Paul hitches this word curse to a particular, he gets very specific about it, he hitches it to a particular relationship that we might have with the law of God. So, I mean, just to, to see this, please look back with me beginning at verse 10. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, who does the works of the law, shall live by them. So what is this relationship with the law that Paul is talking about here? Um, he uses a very helpful word. You've probably heard me like try to emphasize it. It's this word rely. For all who rely, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So there's the relationship. There's the connection. There's the dynamic that Paul has in mind. It's about how we perceive the laws of God. What do we, what do we think they're for? Why do we think that they exist? How are we relating to them? If we're relying on them, if we're relying on our performance, we've been talking about this stuff, right? If we think of, of the law and the works of the law, some kind of doorway that is somehow going to lead us into this experience of this blessing of God, this shalom, this perfect peace, ironically, if we see it that way, it will become a curse to us. And I don't know, I, I just got to wonder if maybe this all sounds a little bit confusing to, to some of us this morning. It might. Maybe you're thinking, Doug, I don't, I don't know how much what you're talking about actually applies to me. Because I don't have, I actually don't have a lot of knowledge about the law of God. Like, this is not a part of, like, my practice. I don't, I don't like, have God's law, like, memorized. I don't have it in my pocket. I'm not, like, going about my days each day, like, checking boxes and, like, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilling the, the works of the law or something like that. You know, I'm trying to be 
I'm trying to be, be a, a, a good individual, a good mom, a good dad, a good brother, son, neighbor, coworker, I suppose. But that's about the extent of it. So I don't know how much this really applies to me, Doug. But I think we have to stay in touch. This is why we have to think of the whole letter. We have to stay in touch with the heart of what, what Paul's actually talking about. Do you remember what he said? Just last week, we looked at this. In verse 3 of chapter 3, Paul said this. He said, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is interesting. He used that, that as like a, like a synonymous statement to trying to do the works of the law, trying to be perfected by the flesh. In other words, your righteousness, being right, being right with God, being right with yourself, being right with others. How are you coming at that? Are you doing so in the spirit by faith or are you relying? There's that word. Are you relying on yourself to do this stuff? Because if you're relying on yourself, you might say, this may, maybe this sounds bonkers, I don't know. But if you're relying on yourself, I'm going to try to illustrate this. If you're relying on yourself, you're under a curse. This is where I wonder if maybe we actually do understand this better than we think we might. Because I think that maybe we understand what this experience is like. Of feeling like we're under some kind of a curse. You can apply this to a lot of different areas of your life. I'll give you an, uh, an illustration that came to my mind. That it, This just came up on Friday night. So Friday night, some of you know that our high schoolers and our, our junior hires, our youth collective, for the first time, we paired up with First Baptist Church on Main Street, had our first shared gathering, and I've got us going through Galatians because I think that this, this is going to be super relevant to the teenagers. So um, I... Uh, I, I shared, you know, a, a brief kind of like introduction to the kids, and I kept saying, guys, I think you're going to be surprised by how relevant this stuff is. And, I, and to give them an example, I, I, I quoted from chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul talks about, you know, he, he's just like, hey, you guys, what do you think I'm doing here? Do you think I'm here to, to experience the approval of others? Do you think I'm here to please people? Um, and, and I just kind of paused for a second and said, can you connect with some of the ideas that are there that Paul's sharing? Do you ever feel that way? Like that you, that you feel like you need the approval of others? That you have this desire to please others to somehow experience like, you know, acceptance, approval. Like you see this group of people over here or this clique over here and you think, man, I'd like to be, a, you know, a part. Like I'd, I'd like to be received. Or man, I would just like it if I, I, I wasn't experiencing active rejection. <laughs> like I want the blessing. I want some favor. I want to experience delight with people. I want to experience peace. And, and here's the thing. So I, I shared that, and then I said, can I level with you guys? Can I just be transparent with you? I just want you guys to know that, like, like what I just expressed there, this has been, like, the most persistent sin struggle that I've had in my life, that I just, I want people to like me. I want to, I want to keep the peace. I don't want conflict. I want people to have a good opinion of me. I, I struggle to tell people hard things. And, you know, and the, here's the interesting thing. And I didn't realize it until I got home later because I was just too busy rambling like I'm doing right now. Um, and one of the kids who was not a part of our group said something like, is that bad? 
You know, like, it, it, like what you just described, is that so bad? And I thought about it when I got home, and I was just like, huh, that's interesting. Is it really so bad that, you, that I would want to experience the absence of conflict? Is it really so bad that I would want to be somebody who could, like, like bring about peace among other people? And it doesn't sound so bad when you put it that way. But if I could go back, and I think I'll have the opportunity to, go, to return to this at some point, um, I would explain that for me it is bad because for me it operates in my life like a curse. For me it can be paralyzing and humiliating actually. I mean for, for me it can look like me standing up in front of a group of teenagers as a 46-year-old man and thinking, man, I hope these guys like me. I hope that they're jiving with what I'm saying. I hope that they think that like I'm a good Bible teacher and that they'll want to come back. I hope they'll all come back. How am I doing? Am I doing okay? And this just spreads into all kinds of areas of my life. Like a curse. Like, 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 a, like a pack of monkeys on my back. Let me see. Maybe you can't relate to what I'm talking about. Let me just explain just a different scenario that maybe is similar to this. I, I, I think about parents, especially moms, having to navigate this impossible mission of being moms that make everything work all the time. Moms, if you think about it, in a sense, are keepers of the peace. Dads, too. I'm not, I'm not leaving you guys out. But... Just trying to create this experience of shalom, really. You know, just, just trying to usher in perfect peace. It, it, it can be very burdensome just to be thinking about, like, okay, like, am I, am I spending enough time with this child? Am I, am I neglecting them and spending too much time here? And, and, and how are my kids doing? Are they developing okay? And are they getting a good enough education? And, and, and am I, you know, giving them fulfilling experiences? And, and I, oh, I got to get to them to, to this sport event. And how are they doing with that? And, and how are they navigating this and that? And are they having conflicts with, with their peers? And are, 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 are they doing okay? And oh man, I gotta get, I got, they need nourishing food. I gotta get, you know, my recipes together. Man, I'm so behind on recipes and we've ordered out too many times this week. And you know what I'm saying? Man, I need to be, be better at these social events that I'm taking my kids to. At these, at these games that I'm attending, I, I, I need to, okay, I gotta remember, I gotta connect with Susie Q and, Pete so-and-so, and I just heard that, that uh, Nancy had surgery last month, and I haven't checked in with her, and so i got to check in with her. And it's the same thing where it's just like the things that I'm describing, it's just like, what's so bad about these things, Doug? These are good things. Like, that's, that's, that's good stuff. Like, this is, what, this is the kind of stuff any mom should do. And it is. It's all good stuff. But it can be paralyzing. It can be absolutely crushing. Some of you are, are sitting here and you're probably thinking just like me, like, you know, like you get out of bed in the morning and you swivel on your behind and your feet hits the floor and you, and you moan. Oh, here we, Monday morning. Oh, here we go. Strap in, buster. You feel like you're under a curse because you just got to kill it. You got to perform. 
according to your own strength, you need to make it happen. Somehow, some way, you've got to usher in the blessing for you and for those around you. And it creates all kinds of relational conflict. Maybe you're in a relationship. Maybe you're in a, a marriage and you don't feel like your spouse is pulling in the same direction. Like they're actually working against the kind of shalom that you're trying to bring about. And you're like, these guys, what do I do with them? Either I got, I got to reform them or I got to kick them to the curb and find somebody who's on the same agenda as me. And it goes on and on. These are all good things. Good things to aspire to, good ideas, good intentions. They're not bad things, but they can become a curse. This, you know, I mean, I think that this is the mentality that Paul has in mind when he, he's talking to us about us perfecting ourselves in our own flesh. And it's impossible. He's telling us this. He's trying to reframe our understanding of what our relationship to the law should be. He says, cursed are all who fail to meet the demands of this law. I mean, let me just reread this for you. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. Abide by all of them. Do all of them. We don't realize how impossible that is. I don't think. This makes me think of like some of the experiences that I've had trying to work on my house. You know, like I've had, I like feels like a curse, by the way. You know, it's just like, man, oh man, I'm so behind. I'm years behind in doing the repairs that, that need to happen. And for every year I get behind, like the more work is gonna need to be done in the long run and the more expense it's gonna require me. So I, I gotta get busy, but I don't have time, but I got to. And you start taking these rotten clapboards out. Like you're like, I, I just gotta replace these clapboards. And then you take out the clapboards and you're like, oh no, it's rotten under the clapboards because I left it too long, foolish me. And so you start taking out that, and you look, oh no, it's rotted beyond that. Like, I thought that I just had to do this, but I gotta do this, and then I thought I just had to do this, and now I gotta do this, and oh no, it's down to the studs. It's down to the bones. What am I gonna do? What a curse. This is, this is what it's like. We don't see it, but this is what it would be like for us to meet every requirement of the law. We'd think, I can do this. Thou shalt not murder. I'm not going to kill anybody. But then you get down further and deeper, and you start pulling things back, and you start to begin to see your own heart and the intentions of your heart and the motives of your heart and the ways that you're relating to people and why you're doing things the, the way that you're doing things and saying the things the way that you're saying things, why you're talking to these teenagers in hoping that they think well of you. And you're like, rotten. It's rotten. And it's impossible, Paul's telling us. It reminds me of Olympians. You know, it's just like the, 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 the Olympians that do the, the floor routine. You know what I'm talking about? Like, they start one corner, and they do all these kinds of, like, crazy flips and maneuvers. And, and it's so technical. And you're like, whoa. Right? But not only that, but then they get to the end, and they do this, like, shot into the air with a flip and a twist, and they have to land the thing perfectly, you know? 
And if they, if they just misstep, if they just bounce the wrong way, the whole thing's off. And rather than getting the 10, they're getting like a 5.3. And it's just like, that's impossible. How do you do it? And they spend years preparing for this one moment, this one shot, this one spotlight. And I love the Olympics, man. I love them. I love to watch them. I cheer them on. But sometimes I see this stuff happen, like this floor routine, some young girl, and she blows it, and then she's off on the side and heaping sobs. And I can't help but thinking, man, what a curse. Like, that girl's been bearing that. She has been preparing for that. That has been on her this whole time. And she had this one moment, and she didn't do it perfectly. It would have been cool if she got the gold, but she didn't. If she had gotten the gold, it would have been a blessing, I suppose, but it wasn't. And this is what we're up against with the law. You realize this? Like, this is like trying to do that floor routine that I just described without any practice. Would you guys like to see me do that? I'm not going to do it. But I'll let you imagine me doing it. I'll give you that much. It would not be pretty. That's what it would be like for me in my attempt to meet the requirements of the law. Does this mean that the law is really a curse like all the way through? Well, no. It demonstrates to us the standard, the character of God. You understand? But our relationship to it, what should it be to us? We're going to get to this more and more as we get into this letter. So if you feel like I'm not saying enough about that, just hang in there. But at the very least, as I end this point, let me just say, what Paul's pointing out is to try to do this, to try to become righteous according to the works of the law, it's madness. It's a fool's errand. This is what he said. He said, are you so foolish? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you into returning to that? That's a curse. You had a blessing. Now you can see why essentially any alternative to what I'm describing sounds kind of like a blessing. Like, yeah, give, can we do something different than that? And here's the thing. The blessing that we read about here that Paul has in mind, it's the blessing of God in the way that we described it earlier. The, 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 the smile of God on your life. The delight of God. So let's, let's, let's think about this a little bit. Let's think about this. Does anybody know, we, we spent a lot of time in the Gospel of John. Does anybody remember John chapter 17, verse 3? Probably not. Here, and let me read it for you. This is it. Let's, let's see if this uh, catches your memory. So this is Jesus, and he's describing to us eternal life. This is eternal life according to Jesus. And this is eternal life that you would perfectly obey my voice and meet my every command and by doing so would receive the blessing. The blessing of shalom. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. Well, what does it say? What does he say? How does Jesus describe eternal life? He says, and this is eternal life that they might know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Maybe you hear that and you think, I like that. 
I, I want that, Doug. I want that. I want to have that experience of knowing my true design, the ultimate intention for my life. And, you know, maybe you would think, God, what do I need to do to get that? What do I got to do? What would, what, what, what would you require of me? What must I do in order to experience that? And I would say on the authority of Scripture that if God were to answer that question, that he would say something to the effect of, go to the one I sent. Isn't this what he said? This is how Jesus defined it. To know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. In answer to the question, I think God would say, go to the one that I sent. I sent him to you. Look to him. Listen to him. This connects very well with the Gospels. This connects very well with what we hear God the Father say at the Transfiguration, if you know this scene. What God says there is actually forecast in Isaiah. In Isaiah, you read something very similar to this. It says, Behold my servant. This is the Father speaking. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. He's blessed, right? My chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is what we hear the Father saying it comes across differently. In, in Luke, it goes like this. So you can try to remember this, right? Like Peter's up there. They're, they're, they're meeting these old saints. Peter, Peter's like nervous. He's just like, oh, this is great. Let's build a hut. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then you hear God's voice come through. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. What does he mean? What does this mean to listen? It means to trust. Trust him. Look to him. Hang on to his words. At bottom, this is what faith is. To look. To listen. seems complicated. It's actually not as complicated as we might think. I'll, I'll give you an example. I love this story. You've probably heard this before. I may have shared this somewhere along the way. This is the conversion story of the great London preacher Charles Hayden Spurgeon in his own words. Okay? It's very interesting. He's at the age of 15 at the time. He's facing a snowstorm trying to get to church on Sunday morning. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose, so the pastor wasn't there. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto him, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, A glimpse of hope 
for me in the text. He began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a deal, uh, does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. And I would add to what he said. Look unto me. I have become a curse for you. For cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Look. He goes on, look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his letter, of his tether. Then he looked at me (laughs) under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He, he then said, young man, you look very miserable. Aren't you guys glad I don't do that to any of you? <laughs> young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, Spurgeon said. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. <laughs> he continued... And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. I could, not, I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ, he said. I mean, do you get that? That Spurgeon, the renowned London preacher, arguably the first megachurch pastor, at the age of 15 was in some little snow-blown church, and, and some tailor said, look, And he did. And it made all the difference. Let me share a different story with you, because that was a conversion story, right? You're saying, oh, yeah, okay, but what about now? What about my life now? Let me share this. This is John Bunyan, best known as the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He also wrote an uh, autobiography entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in it, he recounts a day when he was out walking in some field somewhere, and he was experiencing what he referred to as some dashes on my conscience. Um, meaning he was weighed down with guilt. He was weighed down by his own sin, all right? He was a Christian, and he was just experiencing guilt and shame because of his sin. Listen to what came next. 
Um, notice, and just notice with me how similar the experiences are between these two men, okay? So he's walking through this field, experiencing this guilt, and, and we read this. Suddenly, this sentence fell upon my soul. So this is the sentence that came to his, his mind. Thy righteousness is in heaven. This is the word that came to him. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, as my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, my righteousness is in heaven. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fretting. Where's my righteousness? Where is it? What do I need to do? How can I gather it together? What, what do I, like, and he's saying, no, it's there. It's right there. So that, that God need look nowhere else. God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For that, my righteousness was right before him. Here, therefore, I lived for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ. Oh, I thought, Christ, Christ, there was nothing but Christ before my eyes. There it is, a look. A look. Looking to Christ. No plan B. No veering to the left or to the right, you know, from beginning to end, like Paul. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the blessing. That we can experience these things with the weakness of our faith. Our, I mean, just think of all, when I, when I was walking through, you know, the, the human experience of this curse... Maybe you identified with me and you're like, oh man, you got my number, buddy. That, all of that, with just a look, I would encourage you, just take that and just drop it at the feet of Christ with just a look. It's like letting go of a sack of potatoes, a dead sack of potatoes, effortless. Let gravity do the work, just a look. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for, uh, for this, essentially, this just dissection of our inner life. How painful this ring tr rings true for me, God. That so often I am just paralyzed by my own works, trying to perfect myself in my own flesh, rather than looking by faith to the blessing. God, we thank you that through your son, because he was made a curse for us, we can experience your smile upon our lives. I just pray that if there's anybody here this morning that just really needs for that to come home to meet them, God, I pray that by your spirit that you would just massage it into their minds and into their hearts, that they would leave here um, with this thought just pervading, staying with them. God, would you encourage all of us? Would you unburden us with the good news of the gospel? And it is good news. 
And we pray in his name. Amen.